Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased to have with us Mr. Anthony Tucker-Jones. Mr. Tucker-Jones is uh, the author of the book Churchill, Master and Commander, Winston Churchill in War, 1895-1945, published by Osprey. Welcome, Mr. Tucker-Jones. Uh, thank you, Charles, and uh, thank you for hosting me. Uh, Mr. Tucker-Jones, why did you write this book? Uh, well, in many ways, I'll be honest with you, it, it was kind of for selfish reasons. I've written quite a lot of books on the Second World War over the years, and Churchill was always a player, you know, a bit player amongst all the others, Roosevelt, Marshall, Montgomery, you know, all the key figures of the Second World War. So Churchill was always amongst them, but he was never a focal point for me. And I just thought it it would be quite interesting, actually, from a military point of view, to follow his career um, and see whether or not he really was qualified to become uh, Britain's wartime leader in 1940. The other thing I picked up on, and and, a lot of historians sort of pay lip service to but don't realise the importance of, is the fact that when he became prime minister, he also appointed himself defence minister, which was the first time Britain had had such a, a post. But what effectively that did was it not only meant Churchill was the political leader of the country, obviously, by becoming prime minister, but he also became the country's military commander by being defence minister because he sort of sidestepped the secretary of state of war. And it meant the British chiefs of staff answered directly to him. Um, And that obviously was quite important because it, it gave him strategic oversight of the British war effort. And probably meant he ended up with, you know, greater say on how Britain conducted its war than, say, um, you know, America, where Roosevelt clearly took advice and listened to, I think, it's an important thing, and heeded advice from his generals. Churchill, certainly in the first part of the Second World War, uh, was very much in the, you know, in the driving seat. What, if anything, did Winston Churchill acquire by way of tactical and operational knowledge from his various campaigns in the Indian subcontinent, the Sudan, and the South African War? Well, again, you know, you asking me about sort of what inspired me. Uh, I, I'm, as we all know, there's that famous Walking with Destiny, you know, um, speech that he made in, in 1940 that he felt, you know, that he, when he was asked to become prime minister, it felt as if he was walking with destiny and his whole life had led to that point. And I was never quite sure whether that was just spin, because let's face it, Churchill was a you know prototype spin doctor. I mean, he, he created his own narrative and you know um, this sort of larger than life character. And and I wondered, you know, was that just him with an eye to the historian and him with an eye on history by saying that, or actually was he right? Was he really the best man for the best job at that particular moment in time? And I felt from you know researching and examining his early career and indeed his, his sort of middle life career as well in fact he was the right person and i think um you know go back to a question about his early military escapades <clears throat> i think the thing that he firmly learned from that was that 
uh, nothing in life is gained without taking uh, risks. And certainly as a junior lieutenant in the British Army, he took the most inordinate risks with his own personal safety. And, uh, and certainly over the years, he was almost killed at least a dozen times. I mean, it's miraculous that he, he managed to last until 1940, quite frankly, with some of his behavior. And indeed, his risk-taking continued um, throughout the Second World War as well. He He's one of those chaps, you know, even in later life, that sort of young lieutenant sort of remained trapped inside of him. And he could hear the siren call of the drums. You know, if, if he thought he could get in the middle of the action, then he, he regularly tried to do so. In your discussions of the Dardanelles campaign, would it be correct to say that you take a more lenient view of Churchill's actions than, say, other historians like Christopher Bell? Um, yes, I do. You know, as we all know, Churchill was, um, you know, became the whipping boy for the, the disaster of that campaign. Uh, it was his idea, but I felt certainly purely from a military point of view, it, it certainly was not entirely his fault. Um, at that stage, you know, the concept of combined operations, as we would know them, you know, land, air and sea, um, didn't really exist. I mean, you know, the Allies didn't have landing craft as such, concepts of, you know, naval fire support, air support. All that was very, very rudimentary. Um, and Churchill and the Royal Navy sort of found itself in this sort of chicken and egg problem in that, you know, they argued they couldn't force the straits if the army did not capture the Dardanelle Peninsula. Uh, and by the same token, the army argued that, that they couldn't secure the peninsula if the Navy didn't force the straits. So it, so it became a sort of uh, blame game. And by the army arriving so late in the day, of course, the Turks, along with support from the Germans, were already well tipped off. They beefed up their defences uh, and were ready. You know, the bombardment of the um, Turkish forts there had happened you know, months before the landings ever took place. So the the Turks were given a breathing space, and that wasn't Churchill's fault. Um, you know, that was very much the army loath to commit resources to another front other than the Western Front or in the Middle East. Um, you know, they tried, They really tried to do that campaign, you know, on a shoestring. Again, the Royal Navy was happy to undertake it if they could use their older warships, because then it was not a threat to the, you know, the, the home fleet. Um, so... In many ways, Churchill's concept was hamstrung from the start. And, of course, well, he was ultimately held up for the, you know, responsible for what subsequently happened. But I just felt, as you, as you say, that it, it wasn't entirely his fault. And particularly once, of course, the Navy turned on him when Admiral Jackie Fisher resigned and, um, you know, pointedly said that he'd never supported the operation in the first place. That effectively pulled the rug from uh, beneath Churchill's feet. And it signalled, you know, him as uh, First Lord of the Admiralty did not have the support of the Royal Navy, and that made his position untenable. Did Churchill learn anything by way of tactics in his time in the trenches, 1915-1916? Good question. I think ultimately he learned not what to do. Um, You know, as we all know, he became a proponent of the tank concept um, and supported its development again. You know, he kind of took credit for inventing the tank, which is not entirely true. If anyone was responsible for pushing through the idea, it was um, David Lloyd George as, you know, um, Minister for Munitions and then as, as Prime Minister. But Churchill was involved from his time in the Admiralty because the Royal Navy were responsible for armoured vehicles on the Western Front. Ergo, Churchill took an, an interest in tanks. But I think he firmly learned that certainly on the Western Front, uh, and again from the from the you know from Gallipoli 
that conducting uh, military operations by committee was ultimately a recipe for disaster. And of course, that's what shaped his um, determination when he became prime minister to run the war and obviously hence him appointing himself defence minister. Um, So he knew that, you know, he was a very impatient leader. He was an impatient soldier, he was a patient politician. And certainly one of his thoughts was that he, he always had this urge to get on and get things done maybe before his commanders were ready. And of course, on a number of occasions, that famously led to disaster. But he, but he, I think that, that sort of urgency that he always felt with conducting military operations in part stemmed from the fact that the Allies had lost, you know, uh, the initiative on the Western Front. It had become this horrible slogging match, uh, you know, where gain, uh, ground gained was measured in yards rather than miles. Um, and also, of course, he'd, he'd learned from the German Blitzkrieg as well that you know, by taking the initiative and showing daring, it, it, it could produce quite remarkable results. How important was Churchill's time at the Ministry of Munitions to the eventual Allied victory in the Great War? Um, he certainly was praised for his his um, his performance there. I mean, he threw himself into the job with, uh, with gusto. Of course, he'd been forced to resign from being, you know, First Lord of the Admiralty and, and then packed himself off to the Western Front uh, briefly as a battalion commander uh, and was invited back when Lloyd George, after Lloyd George had become Prime Minister. So I think Churchill was very, very grateful to have a ministerial job. So he certainly, you know, he, t- he certainly took that job very, very seriously. What it did do, of course, was gave Churchill um, first-hand experiences of the logistics of war. I mean, it, it, it's never ver- the very interesting part of military operations but of course it's fundamental to the success of uh military action is that you know troops have to have sufficient supplies and ammunition and everything else that they need to conduct their campaigns so that gave churchill a a sort of bird's eye view if you will of britain's uh industrial capabilities you know when it came to producing ammunition weapons aircraft and indeed tanks you seem highly critical of Churchill's anti-Bolshevik campaign of 1919-1920. Why so? Um, I, I think, well, the, the, the lesson I drew from that was, of course, is that Ch- Churchill and, to a lesser extent, other politicians of the, of the day created a, a rod for their own back, if you will, by obviously intervening in the Russian Civil War, which ensured that uh, once the Bolsheviks had, came, had come to power uh, and the Russian Empire became the Soviet Union, it meant that Stalin never forgave the West for that interference in what arguably, I guess, should have been a, you know, a, domestic, a domestic war, shouldn't have attracted international attention, but it did. And from the very start, Churchill was an ardent anti-Bolshevist, uh, the net result of which was that he wanted military intervention in in Russia. I mean, there were already troops there anyway because Russia had fallen out of the war. So before the end of the Second World War, the Allies had sent them there to protect Russian ports and things. Uh, but he wanted that stepped up. But of course, politicians, particularly the, the you know the Versailles Conference, nobody had a stomach for engaging in another major conflict in the wake of the First World War. Um, so I was amused at sort of Churchill's antics and how he tried to fight a campaign on the cheap, if you like, uh, especially um, by by using um, Czech mercenaries. I mean, I was quite surprised how he tried to employ Czech troops that had been fighting there originally for the for the Russian army. He tried to employ them to help, um, you know, prop up the whites. And I think a lot of people 
don't appreciate that initially the Bolsheviks only controlled a very, very small area. Uh, the whites controlled the bulk of the Russian Empire. But the problem they had was that they didn't really have a unified command. You know, they consisted of a series of different warlords who struggled to coordinate their efforts. And as a result, uh, the Bolsheviks were pretty much able to defeat them piecemeal, ironically with help from the West, because one of the things I did discover was that the Western Allies um, had released half a million Russian prisoners who the Germans had taken. Uh, they released them back into the area controlled by the Bolsheviks, which, of course, it meant it was an immediate injection of manpower into the Red Army. Uh, and certainly helped them. To, um, and, of course, Churchill felt that those men should have actually been handed over to Admiral Kolchak, who was one of the senior white commanders. He felt that they, you know, they obviously should have been sent to um, Vladivostok and then let them march uh, westward to join the white armies uh, rather than just handing them over into, you know, into the western half of Russia where, where Lenin and Trotsky basically got their hands on them. How influential was Churchill to the origins of the concept of air control in the Near and Middle East? Uh, he was very important. In fact, he uh, again, that's one of the things I discovered when I was researching the book, that he, he you know, as I'm sure you're well, a year, well aware, in recent years he's been castigated for, uh, you know, for many of his actions. Uh, and one of them was sort of setting the Royal Air Force on, uh, you know, uh, Afghan and uh, Iraqi and others, civilians, through the use of air power. Uh, but in fact, that concept wasn't his. It was Lord Trenchard, the founder of the Royal Air Force. Uh, and of course, what Churchill did was he and Trenchard were looking after the First World War. They were looking for a way to safeguard the future of the RAF. Uh, obviously, with the peace dividend to the end of the First World War, there wasn't really a great need for the RAF. And indeed, the Army and the Navy were looking at, you know, getting the RAF Royal Air Force broken up uh, and some of their assets um, be taken over by the ground forces and the Navy. And Churchill supported Trenchard's resistance to that. And to justify the future of the Royal Air Force, Trenchard came up with this idea of air control, which was effectively policing from the sky, um, he argued, not unreasonably actually, that it was a cheaper way of um, maintaining control of, uh, of areas than it was sending in large numbers of ground forces or all the, you know, the backup that they needed. Um, and Churchill had, had, had learned the value of that when they'd conducted, the RF conducted a fairly successful campaign against a rebel leader in British Somaliland. Uh, and likewise, the Air Force had conducted itself successfully against uh, the Afghans on the northwest frontier. So when it came to policing Mesopotamia, which of course became, um, you know, Jordan and Iraq and Syria, um, Churchill accepted the idea that a, a way of um, saving money for the taxpayer uh, was obviously to use uh, numbers of RAF squadrons who could scramble at a notice if, if there was trouble anywhere. How did Churchill handle the dilemmas of the war of Irish independence? Um, ultimately, not very well. Um, I mean, he, he helped broker the peace deal, ultimately, um, uh, when Ireland uh, gained independence. But the problem Churchill always had was he, he viewed uh, certainly Ireland and India in the same light, that if, if, if they were lost to the British Empire, um, that would set a precedent for the rest of it, and the rot would set in, and effectively that would, would signal the end of empire, which, of course, he was right subsequently when India became independent. So... He was always very conscious that if Ireland was granted full independence, 
it, it would set an example to the rest of the empire. Um, and he he wasn't even keen really on it having dominion status, which would have meant it run its own its own uh, internal affairs and left you know Britain with sort of overarching say on defence and foreign affairs. Um, so that that's kind of where he was at. That he didn't. Also, he 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 astutely understood that again the same with India that. Ireland, without Britain there keeping the peace, actually would be riven by sectarian violence. Obviously, in Ireland, it, it was a historic um, feud between the Catholics and the Protestants, and obviously in India, it was between the, the Muslim and the Hindu population. Um, so he he understood, you know, that granting in Ireland, sorry, uh, independence, it, 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 it was never going to be a straightforward uh, process, and of course, ultimately led to partition in the. Uh, Northern Ireland remained part of the United Kingdom, um, while the rest became the, the Republic and, and, you know, independent Ireland as we know it today. Um, so it was always, and then and many of his roles again, he he often saw Ireland in terms of a needing a military solution because he saw it as a security problem. You know, certainly in the early days of uh, the trouble there. But by the same token, he he was blamed for a lot of. Um, things that went on there, you know, things like the Black and Tans and the auxiliary units that they, they raised to try and keep law and order before independence. Again, Churchill was held responsible for that. Uh, and in his role as Secretary for, for War and Air, you can argue, well, he was because um, certainly with the Black and Tans, they were recruited from ex-soldiers, which probably did not make for the make for good policemen. Um, but the idea wasn't wasn't Churchill's, but Churchill, of course, was, was held responsible for them. Um, he was subsequently held responsible for their behaviour, but of course there was a Secretary of State for Ireland, there was a Governor in Ireland, there was a CNC Ireland. So there's this whole chain of command that was responsible for what was going on in Ireland and for security and for policing. And yet, over the years, Churchill has been castigated, um, you know, as, as sort of the villain in, in, in what happened there. Did Churchill approach the Cairo Conference of 1922 with any particular strategic aims or goals? Yes, I think he did. Um, again, he saw he saw that conference really as a way of trying to guarantee Britain's overseas um, strategic interests and indeed her security. Um, obviously, Britain at that stage controlled Egypt and the Suez Canal, which of course was you know a, a vital waterway for, for the world's trade and also for shipment of troops um, from the Med, you know, obviously around to India for for, for Britain. So he, he looked at that conference. I think. Um, I mean, he understood that it was a juggling match because um, Britain was going to have to meet France's interests in that part of the world. It was going to have to cope with Turkey's interests in that part of the world because obviously the Ottoman Empire uh, had collapsed and, and, and the Republic of Turkey, is, you know, modern-day Turkey, as we know, it was emerging from the ashes of the Ottoman Empire. So Churchill was given this job of sort of overseeing, trying to figure out what the Western allies, and in particular Britain, because the Cairo conference was only a British affair, was to try and to work out what was going to happen to, you know, Mesopotamia and the and the areas of the Levant, so you know, Lebanon and Syria, what became Jordan, what became Iraq, trying to work out what was going to be the best way of um, securing those regions as sort of British mandates, if you like. Uh, but also policing them on the on the cheap because policing those areas was not was not going to be cheap. And of course, one of the things that Churchill did um, under advice from his advisors was to to install monarchs there, 
in the hope that, <clears throat> in many ways, that he could replicate the um, princely states in India, um, you know, where the princes paid lip service to British rule. And I think he kind of hoped that if there were friendly monarchs, you know, in Baghdad and in Jordan, um, that would make life easier. But of course, ultimately, it, it didn't. And also, it sowed, unfortunately, the seeds for modern for many of the problems the region subsequently suffered in the 20th century, in the late 20th century. How did Churchill react initially to the rise of Hitler's Germany? Um, he, he, I mean, he, I think he knew, he knew from the start what Hitler represented. I mean, he, he seemed to be, it's interesting because he seemed to be less concerned with fascist Italy because obviously Mussolini had been in power since the 20s. Um, but the rise of Hitler did vex him a great deal. Um, but one of these things, you know, one of these quotes of history again is, of course, is that he was very well informed because in his early early days, um, particularly as Home Secretary, he'd helped form um, the British Security Services and the Special Intelligence Service of MI5 and MI6. He'd helped form them. Uh, and as a result, he was fed intelligence during the, the 1930s, you know, during his wilderness years. He was fed regular intelligence as to what Germany was under, up to. And he fully appreciated that, you know, German resurgence was based on one thing and pretty much one thing only. And that was rearmament, which, of course, was in defiance of the Versailles Treaty. Um, but, you know, Britain and France didn't really have much stomach for taking um, Hitler for, to task for that. Uh, but, of course, he became a, a doom and gloom merchant from the back benches in the, you know, in the House of Commons in Parliament. When he kept trying to warn everyone that, Hitler was going to be a threat. Uh, and as I say, he, he was doing that on the basis of good knowledge because, you know, he was, he was well, of, well informed. And also, I thought, again, from researching the book, I kind of felt he, he saw parallels with, with, you know, the Spanish War of Succession and the threat posed by France then, that I think he saw parallels with Germany. And also, of course, he was well aware that the last thing Europe needed after the First World War was a resurgent Germany because it would open up, you know, um, old wounds, and likewise, of course, Hitler made no bones about the fact that he wanted back lost German lands. So, you know, he wanted the Rhineland remilitarized, the Sudetenland, you know, uh, Union with Austria, all these things, uh, which ultimately, of course, were, was all the time increasing um, Germany's manpower. Um, obviously, when he took over Czechoslovakia, he took over Czechoslovakia's uh, weapons factories. You know, Czechoslovakia was one of the major arms manufacturers in Europe. And, of course, he acquired all those factories, um, which meant that they could produce weapons for the Wehrmacht, the German armed forces. How responsible was Churchill for the debacle that was the Norwegian campaign of 1940? Um, well, ultimately, completely, because it happened on his first watch. I mean, I'm surprised he, he managed to survive that, because, of course, at the time he was uh, First Lord of the Admiralty, um, you know, he'd, he'd been invited off the backbenches by Neville Chamberlain, who I think decided it was better to have him in the cabinet causing trouble than outside causing it. Um, so as first sea lord, he'd overseen that. But again, it, it, it was one of those operations that had um, a sound strategic grounding. The idea of it, obviously, to cut off German iron, iron ore and stop the Germans shipping ore from Sweden down the, down the Norwegian coast. It was a sound idea, but it was pretty much ham-fistedly conducted. Uh, and the Germans pretty much picked them to the post. You know, obviously, while well, Britain had come up with the idea, 
and France that maybe they should occupy neutral Norway to stop the Germans uh, occupying it to secure their lines of communication. Hitler and his generals and his admirals had come to exactly the same conclusion and, and, and beat them to the post. So it meant when the French and British troops landed in Norway, they, they were wrong-footed already because the Germans were there to to meet them. And also, the Germans actually fought a much better tactical battle. They were much more flexible than the Allies. Um, you know, so they conducted themselves a lot better. The only the only upshot of the Norwegian campaign, which ultimately was to serve in Churchill's favour later, was that the German Navy was so badly mauled during the um, Norwegian campaign um, that it really was unable to mount, you know, Operation Sea Lion and invasion of, of, of England in, in the summer of 1940 because it had lost an awful lot of surface vessels, but by the same token, so did, um, so did the Royal Navy. And I think one of the lessons that Churchill was slow to to um, learn about the Norwegian campaign, of course, was the was the air power. The air power trumped warships, uh, and Churchill kind of failed to spot that. Um, which, of course, we Britain then paid a heavy price when it came to war with Japan, um, because the Japanese used air power very effectively to initially neutralise the Royal Navy and deep parts of the US and uh, Dutch Pacific fleets. Um, so he, he he kind of failed to to learn the lessons there. But as I say, uh, he he survived the, the 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 scandal of the Norwegian campaign, which is quite quite surprising, really. Um, once again, Neville Chamberlain was was held responsible. Uh, why did the UK win the Battle of Britain, and how responsible was Churchill for that victory? Um. I, well, I, uh, people often ask me, they say, you know, Anthony, what, what do you think was Churchill's finest hour? And I say, well, I know it sounds corny, but it is really 1940 because he drew a line in the sand. You know, he said very firmly he wasn't going to negotiate with the Germans. Um, you know, once France was out of the war, Britain was on its own. Uh, Churchill was obviously hoping uh, beyond reasonable hope at the time that America would enter and, and, and help. But Churchill refused to negotiate because by doing that signaled very firmly to Hitler that Britain would carry on fighting but it also of course consigned Britain to fighting the Battle of Britain and indeed warding off the, the Blitz once the German air campaign you know switched to attacking British cities um, and certainly to to sort of you know here in Britain they always have this idea of Britain alone and you know the Battle of Britain was a near run thing and um, it, it's quite remarkable we won but actually when you look closer to it um, Britain had a lot of things going in its favour, principally of which was RF Fighter Command had been built up during the late 1930s. Uh, and also Britain had uh, radio direction finding, which today we would know known as radar. So um, the RAF was supported by two chains of radars, uh, very, very um, you know early radar systems, but they could pick up German aircraft in France as they were taking off, and they could also pick them up halfway across the channel. So it actually meant um, RF Fighter Command was in a pretty good position to fend off the Luftwaffe. Ultimately, it did turn into a battle of attrition, which uh, you know the RAF won. But Britain did have a number of advantages that the Germans didn't have. And the Germans themselves didn't really grasp the significance of radar. They made some half-hearted attempts to knock out the radar masts, uh, but never made a concerted effort to destroy them. I mean, had they done so, then the, the you know, outcome of the Battle of Britain could have been quite different. What exactly was Churchill's relationship with Sir Arthur Harris? Um, 
It, it was quite a close one, I think. Uh, it certainly t- turned colder as the war came to an end. Um, Churchill's relationship with, you know, Air Vice Marshal Harris and indeed Bomber Command, again, became problematic as the war went on. Initially, uh, for Britain, Bomber Command was the only way that Britain could strike back at Nazi Germany. So it began to wage, um, you know, this strategic air campaign and was then obviously joined by uh, the United States Army Air Force once they deployed to England. And Churchill was very supportive of it. But as, as the war went on, um, the trouble that Churchill had with Harris and the other bomber barons is that they very firmly committed themselves to winning the war through attrition by bombing the Germans into submission, which ultimately didn't, didn't really help things like D-Day when it came to D-Day and the point blank uh, directive. You know, the strategic air forces were supposed to divert, divert their efforts to helping, um, you know, prepare for D-Day. But it became an increasing struggle, and indeed Eisenhower ended up getting furious with them. It became a struggle to get them to divert resources from bombing German cities and factories uh, to doing stuff closer to home, like you know, just bombing German railway system, the French railway system, bringing down bridges, um, things that would stop the Germans moving reinforcements towards Normandy once the D-Day landings took place. It became a struggle. Um, and, of course, famously, Dresden came to symbolise um, the futility, ultimately, of you know, area bombing. Um, you know, the systematic destruction of cities wholesale really didn't, you know, morally and strategically became increasingly difficult to, um, to justify. And, and indeed, you know, when I was researching Churchill's attitudes to it, 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 it was clear that he, was, towards the end of the war, was increasingly trying to distance himself um, from what had taken place. How functional was Churchill's relationship with Field Marshal Sir Alan Brooke, the Chief of the Imperial General Staff? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I think, to be honest, I mean, the impression I got, it was pretty dysfunctional. Um, as I'm sure you know, Churchill used to play musical chairs with his generals um, quite regularly, um, which, you know, really is quite right. If a general's not producing the results that you need, then you should replace him with someone that perhaps can. Um, and Churchill did that on a regular basis. But remarkably, Alan Brooke remained Chief Imperial General Staff uh, for most of the war. And he certainly had quite a difficult uh, relationship with Churchill. Uh, you know, and indeed, Alan Brooke said Churchill's um, you know, strategic thinking ranged from absolute genius, pretty much, to downright dangerous. And Alan Brooke seemed to have spent much of his time trying to dissuade Churchill from some of his more harebrained schemes. Um, so it, 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 I think it was a tough relationship. I think it was borne out by mutual um, respect as well, because um, when I was researching church or attending the, the Rhine crossing, I was surprised by the story where Brooke related that he and Churchill went for a walk um, the night before Operation Plunder took place in the crossing of the Rhine. And Churchill thanked Brooke for his, you know, for everything he'd done, but he also thanked Brooke for standing up to him and, and, and Brooke was quite taken aback because he he said that, you know, that was the nicest thing Churchill had ever said to him. So clearly Brooke, I think, found it difficult working with Churchill. I think he respected Churchill. And indeed, if he'd, if he, you know, if his relationship had been that problematic with Churchill, I think he probably would have resigned. So um, ultimately they were quite, I think they were, 
they were quite a good pair, I think, in, in terms that they sort of complemented each other and what they brought to, to the table in terms of direction of the war. Why did Churchill replace first Wavell and then Auchinleck from the near, the near Middle East Command? Brit, Brit, I mean, Britain's, as we all know, Britain's uh, strategic conduct to the Second World War in North Africa up until late 1942 was, was quite problem, problematic. Um, and indeed, Churchill himself didn't help matters. Um, his, his commitment to helping the Greeks, of course, threw away um, Britain's chances of, of capturing um, you know, Tripoli after their Britain's victory at Bida Farm. If they'd taken, taken Tripoli, effectively would have cut the Italians off in North Africa and um, would have knocked Italy out of the war in Libya quite effectively. Um, but instead, of course, Britain's forces were weakened in North Africa while troops were futilely sent to help, help the Greeks. Um, and then again, in many ways, Wavell and Auckland got the blame for Churchill's you know, constant desire for immediate action. <clears throat> so at great expense, the Royal Navy um, in 1941 shipped tanks and aircraft across the Med to, to equip the 8th Army. And Churchill kept banging the table that he wanted immediate action. But the up, upshot of that was things like Operation Battle Axe and Operation Crusader were conducted much too quickly. They were ill-prepared. Uh, and Rommel got the better of them, which uh, you know resulted in Wavell being ultimately sacked. Uh, and then the same with Auchinleck he succeeded in. He, um, you know, he, he just couldn't quite best Rommel in 42. Uh, which meant, although he'd laid all the groundwork for a British victory in El Alamein, he was kind of cheated of that because Churchill replaced him with, with Montgomery. Um, and indeed, Churchill, by his own admission, found replacing Auckland um, quite difficult. Um, I mean, they both ended up being sent to to India as, as Viceroy and uh, Commander-in-Chief there, uh, which ironically, of course, in India was a, a slight feeling that they'd got second best as these senior generals had been sacked and packed off there. Um, but again, it, it was his relationship with his generals was symptomatic of his his. I want to say meddling, but meddling's not quite the word. But I say his his constant insistence uh, for results, and that, of course, partly undermined his his generals because they of, often acted before they were ready. And in fact, famously, just before uh, Britain's counteroffensive at Alamein. Monty basically told Churchill to, to back off and said, "Look, um, I will, I'll, you know, we'll start the operation when I'm ready, uh, and not before. Uh, and if you're not happy with that, you can replace me." Um, well, the last thing Churchill could could afford to do, of course, was replace Montgomery immediately after he just replaced Auchinleck with Montgomery, when it would have looked, uh, it would not have looked good. Coupled which, I think he probably respected Montgomery for standing up to him. So, you know, Montgomery basically waited until he was fully ready, and because the rest of his history, he scored a he scored a victory. How good was Churchill in handling the relationships between uh, himself and uh, Roosevelt and Stalin? Um, pretty good, I think. Um, you know, Churchill could be very persuasive and very seductive when he wanted to. Um, as I'm sure you know, his relationship with Roosevelt uh, began during the First World War. Um, he was very touched that Roosevelt wrote to him when he was appointed um, first sea lord in 1939. Um, and obviously, Roosevelt did everything he could do to help Churchill before America even invent, you know, uh, entered the Second World War. So they had a good relationship. 
And then bizarrely, Churchill felt really committed to helping the Russians. I mean, he, I think he appreciated that the Red Army was doing the lion's share of the heavy lifting, if you will, by you know, tying down a vast proportion of the Wehrmacht on the Eastern Front. Um, and again, of course, that, that commitment affected Britain's war effort because he shipped uh, lots of tanks and aircraft and guns and ammunition and everything else that the British armed forces could ill afford to lose, really. Um, you know, Waverley and Orkinlek would have rather have had those resources sent to North Africa. But Churchill, um, you know, committed himself to, to, to supporting Stalin. And also, I think he, you know, on the, all the uh, summits and conferences they had, I think he actually quite liked Stalin. Um, and again, I think that may have been in part Stalin likewise, you know, as a, as a, as a world leader to turn on turn on the charm um and indeed he seduced both um churchill and roosevelt of course in in his plans for the end of the second world war they both firmly believed that you know that stalin was a man that they could do business with and 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 indeed that he might he might see the merits of democracy at the end of the second world war um but of course they were both proved wrong but i think that was in part of the charisma of, of stalin that he sort of got his own way by telling them what they wanted to hear essentially um, and of course, Churchill, famously by acquiescing to the areas of interest in Eastern Europe, effectively sowed the seeds of the Cold War. You know, because he he acquiesced to Stalin having you know spheres of influence in in Eastern Europe and the Balkans. Um, that obviously sowed the seeds for what became the Iron Curtain. And what about um, his relationship with De Gaulle? That's always a very interesting one. I mean, um, again, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question because I, I've always been fascinated by the fact that Churchill championed de Gaulle, uh, even when the French didn't. I mean, he was a little-known general when he proclaimed himself head of the Free French. And yet, pretty much from the word go, um, Churchill championed him. I mean, I think he, maybe Churchill saw a little bit of himself in de Gaulle. But the great irony, of, of course, was that de Gaulle did not, did not like the British, um, didn't like the Americans, um, and quite rightly, of course, only wanted what was best for his own country, which was France. Um, and I think whereas probably both Britain uh, and America partially subsumed their national interests in the name of um, you know, pursuing the Second World War, de Gaulle never really played that game. I mean, from the, from the moment he, he began to rise um, to prominence, he made it a point of ensuring that you know France's interests came above all else, which made him quite a difficult customer to deal with. I mean, certainly Roosevelt didn't like him, and Roosevelt very astutely feared that he was actually a dictator in the waiting, uh, you know, because his concern was that once the Allies landed in France, de Gaulle would make himself de facto head of France. There would be no elections, and France might be facing a dictatorship. Now, to be faced to, to fair to de Gaulle, uh, what he cleverly did, of course, was made himself the liberator of Paris, Toulon, and Marseille, France's three main cities. Uh, made himself a darling of the French people, and actually won an election. So he became, you know, the French president, the democratic way. Um, but he did that very single-mindedly, um, and I think ultimately didn't mind who's toes he trod on um, even Churchill because towards the end of things I think Churchill felt de Gaulle was ungrateful um, for the you know despite all the support that Britain had given the free French if you wanted people to take one thing away from your book what would it be oh that's a good question uh, well that 
the central thesis, I think, is, you know, was Churchill qualified to become Britain's um, political master and military commander in 1940? You know, was he qualified to do that job? And I would hope that my, my book will convince readers, yes, he was. Um, and I think there's one other thing I'd like readers to come away from, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are already familiar with Churchill, are well aware of this, is his simple, enormous uh, zest for life. I mean, his, his, his energy, his drive and his achievements are just quite phenomenal um, when you think what he... he you know, what he achieved in his life. And, and he lived, uh, you know, right to a ripe old age into his 90s, um, which when you consider all the personal risks he took with his, with his, his own life, um, his lifestyle was not healthy, you know. Um, and, and likewise, the enormous stresses and strains that he, he endured during the Second World War. So, you know, he, he certainly proved to be a tough old war horse. Um, so, yes, I think... It, Ultimately, I think that's what's, you know, historically wise, I think that's partly what's made Churchill so appealing. It isn't just his his legacy as a war leader, but it, it's that enormous zest for life and his achievements, you know, as a journalist, as a writer, as a politician, um, as, a, as a soldier, uh, you know, as a wartime leader. It, it's just quite remarkable. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Mr. Tucker Jones, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo, and you've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Mr. Tucker Jones. Excellent. Thank you, Charles.